Today's reading is in Colossians chapter 2, 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over, him, over them in him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now, speaking of moms, how many of you remember when your child took or children took their first step, right? You guys remember this? This is a momentous occasion, right? Where, uh, which is kind of amazing, right? We, cameras roll, FaceTimes go on. You're not going to believe what's happening right now. My giant headed child, you know, sort of leaned his way from the chair to the couch and kept his feet under him. And it's this moment of just, you know, elation and we want to capture it and, and, you know, Instagram it and all these things about how wonderful this moment is. And yet it's about as ordinary a human skill as anything, isn't it? It's, it's so, it's literally pedestrian, right? It's, it's, a, it's one of these, these moments that's like a basic, basic human skill that everybody has to learn to do. Uh, and so I don't think it's any coincidence that when we come to Scripture, one of the ways the Bible, in fact, one of the chief metaphors the Bible uses to describe the Christian life is a walk. We walk with God because, because going with God is a journey. Walking with Jesus is a journey, and the basic component of a journey is getting up and beginning that journey and heading in a certain trajectory. So the Bible's going to use this, this terminology about walking, but it's not just any kind of walking, it's walking with Christ. When you think about it, there's all kinds of similarities between a child learning to walk and us learning to walk, right? Walking is a learned skill. It's a learned skill for us as children. It's a learned skill for us as believers. It's something that requires stamina and strength to keep going. I mean, think of when your child first starts walking, they're all head and flabby blubber from the waist down, right? They've got to build up muscle there and all that. So do we, right? We are, we are in many ways, we're unequipped and we've got to learn and to get the stamina and strength. They, children have to avoid obstacles and so do we. And very often children can't walk without being, un, without being accompanied and it's the same with us. And this is why the Bible is going to talk about us walking with Christ forever, right? We're always in that position. And we walk the way we do because we are with Christ, because Christ is the one. That relationship determines everything. Um, in the uh, words of the great theologian Johnny Cash, 
I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the ties that bind. Because you're mine, I walk the line. That's pretty good theology, actually. (laughs) Right? I mean, in other words, he's saying, look, because I'm in this relationship, it determines how I walk. Right? And that's us with Jesus. This relationship determines the way in which we walk. We walk because we're his, he's ours. Now, here's what Paul's going to do. Paul's gone from chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 5. He's basically been helping us understand the gospel, understand who Jesus is. He gets a great section in chapter 1, verse 15, where he begins to just sort of say, Here's, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he has lifted high the name of Jesus. He's explained to us, here's what Christ has done. He won't stop doing that. But now he's going to turn and start to go, okay, how do we walk? The rest of Colossians is committed to this idea of, okay, Christian, you're a believer. You believe the gospel. You've trusted in Christ. Now, what do you do with that? What is it? How does it actually work out in your life? And this is why he's going to start in chapter uh, 2 and verse 6, where we are today. Grab your Bibles. I hope you'll open them with me. And notice it starts with the word, therefore. In other words, therefore is a word we all know that when that word comes, we know that what follows is a logical inference from what came before, right? So we know if I say, therefore, I'm going to conclude what I've been saying. So Paul is saying, I'm I'm going to take everything I've told you up to now, and now, therefore, here's what I want you to do with that. Now, I, I want to just say again, we say this all the time, don't get this backwards, right? We don't start with chapter 2, verse 6, and then work backwards into the first. And here's what I mean by that. We start with the gospel, and then we get to what the gospel does, and, or what the gospel is, and then we get to what the gospel does, right? We, we start with, the, with, with, with the, 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 the good news, and then we, we move on to how we behave in light of that good news, right? Belief, behavior, orthodoxy becomes orthopraxy. We could say this a thousand different ways, but we must not reverse the order of this. Paul doesn't, and Paul says, look, I've I've sort of unpacked the gospel for you. This is how all of his letters go. I've told you what that is. Now, here's how to live in light of it. There were the indicatives. Here's the imperatives. And what's the main imperative that we're going to look at today? Walk with Christ. I want you to walk with him all the days of your life. This is what you must do. Now, what's required, right? And it's good for us to talk this way. That there are some requirements placed on us as believers. There's things we must do when we say, I've believed the gospel. Now, how does that affect my, my behavior? And so Paul's going to say, okay, here's, here's how it does that. Like you, you want to walk with Jesus all your life. That's the main thing I want you to hear. Walk with him, walk with him, walk with him, right? Now, how? How do we walk? What's required for us to walk with Jesus all the days of our lives? Well, that's what he's gonna look, we're going to look at today, okay? So we'll look at three things. We're going to look at you've got to pursue intimacy. We're going to look at you've got to embrace the sufficiency of Jesus. And finally, you've got to remember, recall the victory of Jesus. Okay, so let's, let's go through these one at a time. The first thing I want you to see is that you must pursue intimacy with Jesus. If you want to walk with Jesus faithfully all your life, then you've got to pursue intimacy. So let's start reading in verse 6. Therefore, okay, I just told you all this. Now, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, here's what Paul just did. 
I want to remind you, Colossians. I want to remind you, Christian, here's who you are. You have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Okay, now he didn't just tag on the Lord because that's a nice way to end. He's saying something. You've, you've actually, you've esteemed him. He has come into your life. He is now the Lord and master of your life. It's the Lord. And who is this Lord? He's the Lord that, that Chris Gannon preached on a couple of weeks ago of verses 15 to 23, right? He's the image of the invisible God, that wonderful section about Jesus. This is the Jesus that you're walking with. And because you're walking with him, he, he has Lord over your life. And that lordship means that it has implications into every single part of your life. And so you walk with him every day, all day. This is your relationship and, and, and his lordship impacts you. Now, by the way, this is not the first time Paul has used the word and told us to walk, but he did it in a different way. In fact, hold your finger here and just turn back, maybe just one page, maybe just uh, uh, across the, the, the page, and go to chapter 1 and verse 9. You remember, Paul prayed. And he, he said, I mean, ever since I heard about you, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Look at verse 9, chapter 1. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So Paul prays. I, I, I want this to be true for you. I want you to be able to walk with Jesus. Okay? Now, here's what I want you to notice. What Paul prays for in chapter 1, he commands us to do in chapter 2. So, so watch how he does this. In chapter 1, in this prayer, in verse 10, he says, I pray that you would bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of God. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 7. He says, I want you to be rooted and built up. In fact, look at verse 7 with me. He says, he says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So, so, so now watch this. So, okay, there again, bear fruit increase in the prayer. When he says, what I want you to do, I want you to be rooted and built up. Strengthen, chapter 1, verse 10, in the prayer. Establish, chapter 2, verse 7. Give thanks, chapter 1, prayer. Abounding in thanks, chapter 2, imperative. This is what I want you to do. Okay, so hear me. There is nothing incongruent. We would never want to teach you that if you pray about something, you can remain passive. Right? In fact, what we do is we pray and then we put feet to our faith knowing that it's God who's the power behind the answer, but we don't just sit on our hands and wait for it, right? If I pray for financial provision, Lord, I need your help, you know, we're struggling or whatever, I don't sit at home and eat chips and watch TV and thinking, you know what, I've prayed, so somebody's going to drop a bag of cash, right? That's not how this works. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to go to work. And very often, this is how, this is the means that God uses, is me simply acting out in faith on the things that I've prayed for. Well, that's, that's what Paul's doing here. Okay, now, so I say we must pursue intimacy with Jesus. So let's unpack verse 7 a little more. How do we do that? Okay, I think Paul gives us a couple things here. Number one, I think he says we stay grounded and growing in Jesus. This is what he means. This is a whole agricultural metaphor, right? They lived where farming was the way that you lived and you, you had to plant crops and, and, you know, harvest those crops and sell those crops, right? So he says, you know this, you, you know this whole world. I need you to be rooted and built up and ultimately established. 
Uh, this reminds me of, of the psalmist in, in Psalm chapter 1. Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the water that yields its fruit in season. In other words, he's nourished, he's rooted there. And because he's, he delights in the law of the Lord and he loves scripture and, and, and sort of just bathes and marinates in that, he's, he's fruitful and he's producing things. Okay, this is the idea that we are rooted, the roots go down, we're built up, right? The nourishment comes up. It's like when Jesus says in John chapter 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. The branch needs to be remain in the vine. If it doesn't, it'll wither, die off, it goes in the fire. So you've got to remain in me, abide in me. This is what must be done. You are desperately dependent. You need to stay connected to the vine. How? We stay connected to the vine just through the ordinary disciplines of Coming to church and hearing the word of God preached and reading our Bibles and prayer and fellowshipping with other believers and saints, right? And, and doing the spiritual disciplines that we talked about several weeks ago. These are just, these are the ordinary means of grace. This is, again, this is walking. This isn't graduate level Christianity. This is just you remain in the vine. You just walk daily the ordinary things of life, Okay? Now, that's, that's, the, that's the idea. And, and notice, um, that leads to being established. He says established in the faith, right? So, so you're rooted, you're built up, and then you're established. The roots now go deep like a tree, and now the winds of, of things come along, and you're established and you're firm in your faith. I think that's Paul's idea here. Now, how? How do we get established? There's some higher truth we need to know. Is there some sort of esoteric experience that we have to have? Paul tells us. He says, establish in the faith as you were taught. In other words, this is a review for you. There's no secret hidden thing here. It's not some higher thing you've got to move on to. You just need to stay in what you were taught. What were they taught? The gospel. They were taught about Jesus. They were, they were told about the, 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 what Jesus did and his redemption. He says, you stay there. You learn Jesus, and that's going to help you grow. Well, that's exactly what we're called to do, right? It's not, we don't ever move on from the gospel. We don't ever move on from Jesus. There, there's nothing more, if you will. We, 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 we learn Jesus and grow in Jesus. We're rooted, we're established in him, in him. That, that's what Paul's talking about. Now, so stay grounded, growing, okay? But then, then he says, but be grateful to Jesus. You see that? He says abounding, verse seven, abounding in thanksgiving, the way the Bible's going to talk is the more we know Jesus, the more we know about God, the more we know about what God in Christ has done for us in redemption and forgiving and, and taking care of our sin, right? The more, it says the more thankful we're going to be. Like this is one of the marks, I would say, of spiritual maturity. You're rooted, built up, established. Do you want to know if that's true in your life? Am I really, am I rooted and grounded Am I established in the faith? I think one of the ways you're going to know that is, look at, am I thankful? Am I a grateful person? In fact, not just not a little bit thankful. He says, I'm abounding in thanksgiving. It's overflowing in my life. 
I cannot get over what Jesus Christ did for me. He forgave me. See, listen, when my sin is really small and I kind of think, you know what, there wasn't a whole lot to forgive. Look what God did. I kind of mostly deserved it. Well, then, man, I'm not going to abound in thanksgiving. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of approach God as though, you know, I'm, uh, I'm entitled to it. I deserve it. That is a very different orientation to the truth of Scripture. That's a very different orientation to God in Christ. And we are to be abounding in thanksgiving. In fact, let me say this. I think, I think gratitude is a spiritual discipline. We didn't touch on this in our, our series. And I, 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 you know, we're trying to get it done, I guess, in a certain amount of time. And the truth of the matter is, I, I think that's a big hole because, because this is, you, you will see this over and over. Be thankful, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. Paul's gonna say it again and again and again and again. This is a discipline of the Christian life. Is there any kind of discipline in your life that brings you back to a place of thankfulness? Listen, it could be sitting around the dinner table and praying before a meal simply to say thank you, not just for the food, but for the provision and all of life that this represents. Is there any time when you just stop and say, Lord, thank you? Like, where would I be? What would I be destined for apart from you? Like, Paul says, man, that ought to be happening all the time where you are abounding in thanksgiving. So how do we, how do we pursue intimacy with Jesus? We stay grounded and growing, right, through just the ordinary means, and, we, and we're, we're just thankful. Again, this is just walking. Right? There's no, there's no like, you know, again, graduate level Christianity here that I've got to introduce to you. This is all seems very ordinary. That's why it's called walking. We walk with Christ like this, okay? Second of all, we embrace the sufficiency of Christ. Now, one of the things we have to do when we come to a book like Colossians or any of Paul's letters, and a lot of scripture, in fact, is we've got to figure out what was Paul after. Like, in other words, what was going on in Colossae that prompted Paul to write this letter? Well, we don't know explicitly, right? You can read things like Galatians, and you're like, okay, I'm pretty sure I know what's going on in, in Galatia, right? There was some real bad heresies going on. Or Corinthians, man, you guys are crazy, and they're doing all these things, and you got to like bring some order to this. So there's, there's places where it's really obvious. Colossians is not obvious, so we have to read between the lines and, and try to discern exactly what it is what Paul was trying to confront in Colossae. And probably he's, he's run into, or they have run into, there are false teachers that have come into Colossae. And they're beginning to teach, and Colossae hasn't, you know, sort of taken hook, line, and sinker. They've started to consider it, and Paul says, man, I want to cut this off at the pass. I'll, before this goes any further, I want to address some of these things. And, and so what they might be taught is that you need to add something else to your salvation. There's something more that's required than just Jesus and the gospel. There's something, if you're going to be truly righteous before God, then you've got to do something else. And so Paul's going to basically say this, I want to give you something that you must reject and something you must receive, okay? So what does he tell they must reject? Let's say it this way. He's saying they've got to reject false teaching that denies the sufficiency of Christ. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, I'll talk about that in a minute, of the world, and not according to Christ, 
Okay, so I want to, I want to get you off of these other things, and I'm going to get you back focused on Christ. And these other things are denying the sufficiency of Christ. Um, now, by the way, he says, you know, uh, uh, philosophy and empty deceit. I don't, I don't think he means philosophy is bad. If you major in philosophy, don't worry about it. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a philosophy, a worldview, a teaching. Uh, can I say it this way? Um, an accusing voice that tells you that you need something more than Christ to be justified in God's eyes. That you, you have to add something to your faith that will, that will make God accept you or that will prove your righteousness. Hey, Paul says, you, you've got to deny that. That's not just wrongheaded. That's evil. That's demonic. And I'll show you where I get that from. But here's the thing. It's so prevalent. Like it's, we can look at Colossians. Oh, wow, that's crazy. They would believe like that. And yet, isn't this true of most of us? Like, isn't, I, I think we confess and we sing songs like Jesus paid it all. And, 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 and the truth of the matter is that seems too good to be true. Jesus paid it all, right? What, what, because there's something inside all of us that says, wait, I've got to pay something. There's got to be something on me that causes me and helps me earn what he's given to me. Now I've got to prove myself in some way. And so what do we do? Listen, Paul's after anything, anything that attempts to add to Christ to make you righteous. If there's any teaching, any philosophy, any worldview, any voice in your head that says you're not doing enough, there's got to be more here besides Christ is wrong. It's demonic. And yet again, I think this is so prevalent for us, right? Um, this kind of this kind of attempt to justify ourselves, this kind of attempt to prove that we're righteous, right? I've got to prove to myself. It comes out in, in nearly every sphere of our, of our lives, right? It, it comes out in us as parents, doesn't it? I parent better than them. We don't do that. This is why we're righteous. I use more earth-friendly diapers than you. That means I'm more righteous than you. I, 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 I vote a certain way. That means I'm more righteous than you. I'm, you know, I, I don't follow that sport like you. You're obsessed with it. I'm not, so I must be better. I mean, this, this is out of control in most of our lives. It's everywhere. I just, just take stock. I imagine that most people walk around, Christians walk around with some sort of low-level guilt, Jesus isn't enough. I have to do something more. I have to, I have to prove in some other way. Look, it's, 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 the, it's the false teachers that come along. It's the false teachers explicitly or the false teacher in your head that comes along and says to you, of course Christ saved you, but you have to do more to prove your righteousness. It's wrong. And what happens? When, when I believe those, that, that kind of righteousness is what really makes me righteous, when I believe this stuff I've got to do and not what Jesus has done, then I will become enslaved to that. Listen, some of you 
are, are enslaved. You're enslaved to exercise. You're enslaved to diet. You're, you're, you're enslaved to, you know, some kind of uh, physical thing you have to do. You're, you're enslaved to, to learning. You're, I mean, there, there, there's all kinds. Of, they're good things that we've made ultimate things. We've made messianic things. We've made these things that will save us and make us more righteous than other people. And they're wrong. Any human tradition, any rule that is divorced from the person and work of Christ will enslave you. It's demonic. I think this is what Paul means by the elemental spirits of the world. Our friend Sam Storm says this, there is a demonic energy behind any philosophy that undermines or detracts from or tries to supplement the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, and he alone is truly enough. He is and will be all we ever need. Do you believe this, Christian? Like this is the truth and this is the thing we have to return to again and again and again. I must reject every kind of false teaching, philosophy, worldview, critical thoughts that try to tell me that I can be justified apart from Christ, that I can make myself righteous that I need something more than what Jesus Christ has done for me. But that's the first thing. I've got to reject that, but I've got to receive faithful teaching that exalts uh, the sufficiency of Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. He says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority, the one over all that rule and authority. The, the, The one that we worship is the fullness of God. Okay, rather than the empty deceit, Paul says, no, you have a Christ who the whole fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. What's he saying? I, 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 I mean, look at that. He says, for in him. That word for is because, because he's full, now you're full. Because the divine nature dwells in him and because you have the fullness of him, you have no need <clears throat> for empty teaching that says that Christ isn't enough. You have everything you need. Listen to me. Only Christ, only Christ uh, is fully God. The whole of God dwells in him. There is no other person. There is no other celebrity. There's no influencer. There's no premier or prime minister or president that will, or king or prince that will ever have, you know, this part of God, like somehow they are, they have some sort of God in them. I'm not talking about the Spirit's work in them. I'm saying they are not God. There's no one else that can claim this. And you know why I bring this up? I'm I'm not sure we believe this. We're about to enter into another presidential cycle. You ready for this? Aren't you excited? Um, and here's what I'm, here's what I, I'll just make a prediction here. I don't care if they're Republican, Democrat, or Independent, they're going to say something like this. This is the most important election in the history of mankind. (laughs) And only I can save this country. It's up to me. And if you don't vote me in, 
America will lose its soul. I will save you, and I will save your liberty, and I'll save your job, and I'll save America. And I'll, I mean, this is how we're going to hear this kind of rhetoric. And here's the thing. They're then going to come, and they're going to try to get the Christian vote. And they're going to say things. They're going to mention enough of Jesus, and I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whatever, they're going to say it, and it's going to have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. It's going to have everything to do with them. Because at the end of the day, when things go great, they're not going to say, listen, praise Jesus that things have gone well. Because, man, if it wasn't for him, we would be in a mess. Nobody's going to talk like that. What they're going to say is, praise me. I'm the hero. I'm your Savior. Not any, listen, Jesus is not going to get any credibility in this. And I get it, church. I get it when the world falls for that nonsense. I am baffled that this happens to Christians every four years. That somehow we actually believe there is another savior in our universe who fills up the office of president. Listen, this is deadly. We have a Messiah. We have a Savior. Right? He's on the throne. And he's fullness of God in bodily form. And someday he will return and put everything to rights. That's what we serve. We have to deny. Listen, we have to deny those who deny the sufficiency of Christ. And we have to listen to those who exalt the sufficiency of Christ. There are pulpits across America that are wanting to scare you. And oh my goodness, if we don't do this or that, this world's going to hell. Listen, I'm so glad when there are Christians in power. Praise God. But even they can't save us. No man can. Jesus can. He's the only one. The only one, right? And this is, this is how our posture needs to be this way, church. That we're like, hey, listen, I hope, I hope a man who has any kind of inkling toward faith, maybe, maybe we'll get there. But in the end, our hope is in Jesus. He is the sufficient one, okay? All right, I'll stop meddling. We'll move on. You must recall, thirdly, your victory in Jesus. Now, I love this. Um, okay, here's what Paul's going to do. Walking with Christ. You want to walk with Christ all the days of your life? Yep, you're going you're gonna to need to stay grounded and growing and grow in your relationship with Jesus. Like we put it here at Foothill Church, that needs to be happening. You've got to embrace the sufficiency of Jesus because there's all kind of voices and things that are going to tell you Jesus isn't enough. But you must recall and remember your victory in Jesus. You need to remember what Jesus has done. In other words, it's going to require you returning to the gospel again and again and again over the course of your life. The gospel is not just something that saved you in the past. The gospel is saving you right now. The gospel is helping you grow right now. So look what Paul does in verses 11 through 15. He basically says, what did Jesus do for you? I'm going to remind you again of the gospel. I'm going to tell you again, because this is how you're going to walk with Jesus. You've got to come back to this again and again. And so what does he do? He gives us four things here that I see. What did Jesus do for us? Number one, he says he circumcised our hearts. Look at verse 11. In him you also were circumcised uh, with a circumcision made without hands. 
Let's stop there just for a second, right? Obviously, we, if, if you know anything about sort of Jewish custom, you know that on the eighth day, they would take the, the children, the boys born, and they would, they would circumcise them, right? That was a ritual. It was a sign of the covenant. And in Galatia, in fact, it had gotten so overblown that there were, there were actually people coming back into town and saying, okay, yeah, that's great and all that you have been, uh, you, you've believed in Jesus, but you also must be circumcised. Paul's like, no way, no how, that is a work, that's not happening. That, that is, that is, that is uh, to, to denigrate, that's to destroy the grace of God. But notice what he does here. He says to Gentile Christians in Colossae, You've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, what is that? He's talking about the circumcision of our hearts, and the only one that can do that is God. The only one that can do that without hands, right, is God. And so the only circumcision that matters, Paul is saying, is spiritual circumcision. Okay, so he says, okay, so now you've been circumcised. How? Do you see this? Keep going in verse 11 by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, let's stop there for a second. He doesn't mean when Jesus was eight days old. I think what Paul is doing here is he's giving us a very graphic a picture of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. This wasn't just a, uh, the circumcision of a baby boy. This was a stripping, if you will, of his entire body on the cross. And Paul says, this is what happened. That's your circumcision came through that stripping of the body off because you're in Christ. Because you, if, if you be, believed in him, you put your faith in him, then, then when he died, you died. Your sin was stripped, if you will. And now it has no power over you. That's what I think Paul's describing there. Do you know this, Christian? Like, this is the kind of truths we have to walk in. These are some of the things that help us go, I don't have to sin. This might, my, my, Jesus has taken care of this. I don't need to keep submitting to this any longer because of what Christ has done for me. He circumcised our hearts. That's the first thing. But notice the second thing. He says he conquered death. So, so look at verse 12 and 13. It says, having been buried with him in baptism. Look at all these images of death in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you were dead in your trespass, trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Now I want you to notice, first of all, notice all these things are describing burial and resurrection. Jesus Christ was, was dead, buried, raised again, right? So, so, so he's saying he's conquered death through his resurrection. But I want you to notice a couple things about the way Paul says, let's do a little grammar lesson here together. Notice he says, he, he, he uses a bunch of these passive verbs, right? That, that is that God is the one who's the active agent. We were dead, God made alive. We were buried, he raised up. Right? So listen, Christian, the metaphor of when Christ rescued you and redeemed you and forgave you and did all he did for you is not that you were sort of floating and kind of drowning and he needed to throw you, you know, a life raft and you then climbed on and he pulled you to shore. That isn't the metaphor. The metaphor is you were dead. You were sunk to the bottom of the ocean. You had no hope. 
And God rescued you and resuscitated you and resurrected you. That's the idea. You were dead. People who were dead need to be raised. You're buried. That's the whole idea. It was over for you. And God raised you up. That's the first thing. Notice they're passive verbs. But notice the other thing. They're past tense verbs. See that? It's all done. You were this, now this, right? In other words, it's done, it's accomplished, it's finished. And all because through our faith in Jesus, we're united. It's this wonderful doctrine of our union with Christ. This is what Christ has done for you. Notice he says, all this has been done together with him. There's union. It's all because of what Christ, that we're found in him. We were dead, we're made alive, we were buried, right? He resurrected because of what he did for him, he did for us. So he conquered death. The third thing is, is he canceled our debt. Look at verse 13 again. Go to the end. He says, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? How, Paul? Did he just decide, well, I'll just make them go away. I'll pretend like they didn't happen. No. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The picture there is they actually were these, these certificates would be written out saying, here's your debt, right? Or here's the crime sometimes. And, and you might recall, or maybe you remember from some teaching somewhere that when a criminal in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, was crucified, which is what Paul's talking about, they were, there was a, a, basically a, a, a label put over their head that basically said, here's why they're being crucified. This is the penalty. They're paying this penalty for that debt. You might recall that Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, had a sign hanging over his head that said, King of the Jews. And the Pharisees came to him and said, hey, wait a second. No, no, no. And they say he claimed to be King of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, it is what it is. But what's, why is it up there? This is what he's accused of. <laughs> it turned out to be reality, didn't it? But that's the idea. There it is. That was the accusation. So here, what's happening when Paul says, he took this record of debt and he canceled it by nailing it to the cross. He took the debt of your sin. Imagine your sins there written out, all of them, if you will. And Jesus nails them to the cross and then climbs up on the cross and pays for them. That's the idea. Those are the sins he's paid for. So he canceled them. They're over. There is no more sin for you to pay for. See, the false teachers are coming in town saying, yeah, you're not quite righteous yet. There's more that must be done. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Our hearts have been circumcised. We don't need to do that. He's conquered death. I don't need more to raise from the dead. He's, he's canceled our death. There's no more debt to be paid. And then finally, he condemned our enemy. Look at verse, look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, I think he's talking about demonic powers and authorities. Paul uses this several times in his letters, and that's the idea. That he's saying that in the cross, by the way, in the cross, Jesus Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Now, I want to say a couple things about this. You know what this means, Christian? It means, look, I, 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 I absolutely believe there are demons. I believe there is a real devil. I believe that they will do everything in their power to discourage you and condemn you. I think they will do things to make you fear them. 
Like a lot of us don't want to go to movies where demonic activity is involved because usually those are not happy movies, right? Those are very scary. I don't want to see any of this kind of movie, right? And here's Paul saying, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he disarmed them. He defanged them. You have nothing to fear. That's amazing to me. Christian, this is the claim we can make if we have believed on Jesus Christ when the devil does his best to intimidate you and make you fearful and tell you all kinds of lies. You you can look back and say, you have been disarmed. Like you have been destroyed. None of these things that you're accusing me of are true anymore, right? Martin Luther talked about, man, when the devil accuses me, I turn him back on him to slit his own throat. Do you know this, Christian? You don't have to submit to the lies and fear tactics and all the things that, that Satan would want to do. But, but there's another thing I want, you, want us to look at. He says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in, and it says him in some of your translations, the literal translation is in it. So, so okay, here's what he's saying. In it, it being the cross. Yes, there's triumph in the resurrection. Paul's saying there's triumph on the cross. There's triumph that happened on the cross. And here's what he's saying. When Jesus is hanging there, stripped naked, bloody, dying, here's the reality of what's happening. He's putting demons to open shame. Now, that doesn't feel real to me, does it to you? Because it doesn't seem like that's what's happening. It seems like Jesus is being humiliated and put to open shame and made a public spectacle of. And Paul says, here's the reality. It may feel that way, but here's really what's going on. Now, why do we struggle? Let me say it for me. Why would I struggle believing with that? I think it's because um, Charles Taylor, he's a, a philosopher, wrote a book called Our Secular Age, and he, he argues how is it that we've become so secular in a matter of just a couple of generations. And one of the things he says is because now we, we, the world has been, he calls it, disenchanted, okay? Like think about it. 300 years ago, if you and I were walking and we came to a dark wood on a, you know, on a dark night, we're like, can't go in there. Why? Because the world's enchanted. There's things that are going on in this world. Now, was all that true? No. But what, there was a recognition that lying beyond the veil of our five senses was a reality that we couldn't see. We don't believe this anymore. We live in a disenchanted world. So when we hear things like he disarmed the rulers in authority, we're like, well, look, what I see and what you're telling me, Paul, feel very, very different from each other. And Paul's saying, you got to believe this, that when he died, when he was hanging on the cross, he, he's not the one who's being humiliated. They are. There is a bigger reality here that you can't see. This is walking by faith and not by sight. This is believing that this is actually true. Do you understand, Christian, that lying beyond the veil right now is a bigger world, a more real world, the Bible's gonna say, than the world that you're sitting in right now. It's more real than the chair you're sitting in. That's hard to believe. 
Lucas, we were talking a couple weeks ago, and I think I'm late to the party here, but he told me, some of you, if you've heard about this place called North Sentinel Island, anybody heard of this place? Okay, don't Google it right now. Um, <laughs> nor, so I'll tell you this, and you go look me up and you'll, you'll see. North Sentinel Island is a little tiny island uh, next to another set of islands off the coast of India. And, and uh, the Sentinelese are a um, practically prehistoric group of people, uh, very primitive. Uh, there has never been anybody from the outside world, we could say, who's been able to get in there and learn about them and uh, learn their language. We know nothing about their language. We know nothing about their customs because anybody that goes there is killed. Um, and in fact, the Indian government oversees the, 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 the North Sentinel Island and they actually patrol it and nobody's supposed to go in there. A missionary tried to go in there a couple of years ago and they killed him. We know nothing about them. They know nothing about us. We've tried flying drones over them and they have no idea what they're looking at and they try to spear them. Okay, now, now think about this. Here's why I'm telling you this. They, they have a reality that is as big as their island. That's their whole frame of reference. And if you went to them and said, I have a device in my pocket that will let you communicate with people, you know, 4,000 miles away. First of all, they'd be like, I don't even know what that means, 4,000 miles away. I don't even know of, of a universe outside of this. And they, if you, they heard a voice, they'd probably think there was a demon in that phone, right? If, if you told them, see that See that bright light at night, the big one there, the moon? We have this transportation vehicle that would have taken people up there and they've walked on that. They'd be like, this, this is nuts, right? Why? Because their reality is right here. This is all they know. And we all know there's a much larger reality they have no clue about. What if that's true of us? What if what Paul is describing in Colossians chapter two, when he says he put them to open shame, that there is a whole universe, a more real place that we can't see that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, they were being shamed. Do you believe that? So he says, here's what happened. This emblem of disgrace became the instrument of defeat. The very thing that we can't see was happening. The battle was over. The victory was won. This is where Paul, this is Paul says, okay, here's how we walk with him all the days of our lives. We remember this. Remember, there is a reality. There's someday when the veil is going to be lifted and we will see beyond the veil and we'll realize I have been caught up. I've been like a North Sentinelese and I have this little microcosm of reality and my mind has just, I've, I've, I now see it all in all its fullness and now I see it. You triumphed over them in him. That's the truth. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, thank you.
Thank you for your word. And God, I pray, I pray that we would be people that would walk with Jesus all the days of our lives. The Jesus that Paul has extolled, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who is deserving of preeminence in everything. And Lord, we would grow, we'd, we'd be rooted and built up and established in him. God, we would, we would say no to all the, the voices that tell us that Christ's sacrifice is insufficient and we would say yes and see that Jesus is the fullness of God. There's no more fullness we have to have. We have it all in Christ. And then God, may we just remember again and again and again the victory that we have because of Jesus. Lord, I pray, I pray for people here this morning, perhaps, perhaps they've, they've never put their faith, their trust, their hope in Jesus Christ. They've heard the gospel. They've heard of, of what you did when we put our faith in you. You, you circumcised our hearts and you, you, you canceled our debt and you conquered our sin and you condemned our enemy. And I pray, God, today that would happen even in this room that as people put their faith in the powerful work of God in Christ, that you would, you would do these things in their lives. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. And we ask this in your name.